Let's turn to read God's Word now. Um, the book of Psalms, Psalm, Psalm number 73. Psalm number 73. And we're going to read the whole psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is our knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in a slippery place. You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. And may God bless to us this reading of his own holy word. And I want us this morning just to focus particularly on these very well-known words of verse 20, Psalm 73, verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As you know, this psalm is so full of what we may term Christian experience, because it really plumbs the depths and it really soars to the heights. And in this psalm, we find that the psalmist has gone through an incredible turmoil, a real crisis of faith. Because he's looked around, and it's something probably we've all done at different times. And particularly for the Christians, sometimes they look around, and they seem to see that those who don't care anything for God, who have no time for God, no interest in God, that they seem to be getting on. And life seems to be going really well for them. And then they look at their own situation and they say, you know, since I became a Christian, I've had nothing but hassle and trouble and difficulties. And so all kinds of thoughts can go on and in a person's life and in a person's heart. And to a certain extent, that's a crisis that uh, Asaph, the person who composed this psalm, that, that he was facing. So this psalm deals with the Christian losing sight of God, of losing their identity as believers in this world, of their purpose in this world, of what it's all about. And yet on the other hand, we find that the same, very same person, that his focus is renewed, restored, he comes back to seeing things in a proper way, to grasping it all, to understanding who he is, why he's here, and what it all, what's it all about. And so that's why it's, a, it's quite an extraordinary psalm. Uh, so I want us this morning just to, to think a wee bit about it. And key, really, to it is God's house. What we're doing today, where we're meeting, whether it's uh, present here or whether it's people who might be tuning in, it's very important to gather around God's word. And if po at all possible, to meet together in God's house, because God's house, the sanctuary, was key in Asaph's life to getting back on track. He had completely lost his way, but he, he tells us verse 17 is kind of a, it's a hinge to the whole thing. See, he says verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. As he was just, he was in this fog and he had lost sight of God and he was just, he was saying, I'm, I'm just absolutely worn out trying to think about it. Until, until I went to God's house and it all changed. That's what it says. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And you know, that is so important for us because I'm sure all of us here, different times as you look back, that God has, in one way or another, well, I shouldn't say in one way or another, but through his word, he has met us, and he has opened our heart, opened our eyes to things. Sometimes you can come into church. Sometimes you can come in and be angry. Sometimes you can come in and be confused. Sometimes you can come in with all kinds of difficulties and issues and problems and uncertainties. And through maybe the singing or the reading or the prayer or through the preaching, a clarity, a growing understanding, a growing clarity, 
And it's like God is directing your mind in a certain way. And you go out a different person to the person who came in. That's what happened with Asaph. And I'm sure we've all been there. We can understand exactly what Asaph is saying. Because God deals with us when we come into the word. He teaches us. He instructs us. He guides us. He shows us. He rebukes us. There's all sorts of different things that he does. But that's why it's so, so important to do what we're doing today, gathering in God's word. Under God's word, in God's house. Because he can change our attitude. You know, sometimes that's what happens. We might come in with a particular attitude problem. But by the time we go out, that's changed. We might come in on a high horse about something. When we under his word, he manages to deflate us and to begin to see sense and to change our attitude, to change our thinking, to change our heart. He's wonderful at doing that in our life. And we should always, when we come to God's house, ask the Lord, Lord, today, see, when I come to go to your house and come under your word, will you speak to me? Will you show me? Will you challenge my life? Will you bring your word to bear upon me so that you will help me in the way to go? So that's what happened really for Asaph. And that's why he was able to say in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with me. You hold me by my right hand. And I love that because in the previous verse, you'll notice what he says in verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You know, when you look at verses 23 to 26, you say, whoa. This man, is a what, a what a wonderful Christian. Love to spend time in his company. He's so full of the Lord. He's got such a vision of what it's all about. And if you had heard Asaph just the verse before, you wouldn't want to be in his company. He was in a massive doubt. He was completely off the rails. He had lost his way. And he was acting like a brute before God. That's what he says. I was brutish and ignorant. And how, he, how had he arrived to become brutish and ignorant? Well, verse 21 tells us, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I became, that's what, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You see, he allowed bitterness to come into his heart. And you know, bitterness is, a, is so destructive. It will change our way of thinking about everything if we allow a bitter spirit within. And it's very easy to allow a bitter spirit about circumstances, about people, about church, about so many different situations. But if we allow a bitter spirit into our heart, it will change things. And that's what happened to Asaph. And when he realized, when he came to God's house, that it was because of this bitter spirit that he had, he was acting like a brute before God because of some of the things he was thinking and some of the things he was saying, the charges that he had against God. He was saying, he was saying back in, is it in verse 13, he says, it's been all in vain I've kept my heart clean. Wash my hands in innocence. In other words, this is a, it was pointless. This whole thing of trying to live as a Christian follow the Lord, it's been absolutely worthless. No point in it. But you see, when he's come to God's house, 
and his vision is restored. He's absolutely ashamed of the way he thought, the way he spoke. He said, Lord, I, I was like a brute before you. I was mouthing off and I, I you know, you can see he's, he's, he's really, really uh, so grieved in his heart about how he had been. But you know the wonderful thing? Despite the fact that Asaph, as he says, was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you, nevertheless, and continually with me, you hold my right hand. I love that. Despite all Asaph's ramping and raving against God, God still had a hold of him. God wasn't going to let him go. And God was seeing Asaph and he says, you know, I want to sort you out. I'm hearing you ranting. I'm hearing you raving. I see your bitter heart. I hear your brutish words. But I've still got hold of you. I'm not going to let you go. Isn't that wonderful? Because when you think about it, if somebody acted towards us the way that we sometimes act towards God, you would say to yourself, well, that's it. I'm done with you. I'm out. You're on your own. No. Lord, Lord doesn't deal like that with us. And it's here we see his unconditional love. A love that won't give up. A love that won't let go. A love that won't turn his back upon us. So verses 22 and 23 show us, in a sense, the two forces and the two powers that are at work within our lives all the time. They see the power of sin. And the power of sin, it distorts, it affects, it spoils, and it often has the potential to leave us irrational and to leave us bitter. And I'm sure as we look back in our lives, we can see times where we allowed sin to maybe rule at a time, and it spoiled everything. Our attitudes were all wrong. Everything was wrong. And it was because of sin. Sometimes we knew it. Sometimes we didn't realize it at the, at the actual time. But our brutish heart will spoil our fellowship and our closeness with God. And, you know, if we're Christians today, and we have to say, you know, I've lost my way, Lord. You're away from me. I used to know the, your closeness. I used to know your, in fellowship, your fellowship. I used to enjoy a sense of your presence. No longer. I don't know what's happened. Well, God hasn't changed. If there's any change, the change must be with us. And that's why sometimes we have to stop and say, Lord, whatever's wrong, it's with me. Show me, Lord. As the psalmist says, show me thy ways, O Lord. And the Lord is always wanting. He's always in the business of bringing us back. Sometimes the bringing back can be painful. But it's necessary. And we need to be honest with the Lord and say, Lord, I, I'm not where I should be. I've lost that. I've lost the spark. I've lost sight of you. I'm going through the motions. It's not the way it should be. I know it. But the Lord is saying that's the first step. That's the first step to recovery. You need to discover where you are. And the Lord says, I'll get you back. And that's what he did with Asaph. He got Asaph back so that the man who was acting like a brute and was speaking awful things against God and awful thoughts against God, within a short time, his voice has totally changed and it's now praising God. And that's what the Lord is able to do for you and for me. And so he's upholding him 
with his hand. And then he goes on to say in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Now, the counsel can speak of two things. First of all, the counsel of God can often speak of God's uh, purposes and his plans and his determined purpose to do or do things. And the thing is that that God has a purpose and he has a plan for our lives. And it's on this pathway, which will always be according to his word, that he has this particular purpose and plan for your life and for mine. And sometimes we feel that God's purposes and plans aren't working, but they always are. Because God's word and God's providence will always ultimately blend together. Even although for a time they may appear to be going in completely opposite directions. But when we come to the Bible, we see that very thing. And you see it in the likes of the life of Jacob and Joseph and David. Because God's word was saying one thing to them. And God's providence seemed to be going in a completely opposite direction. In fact, Jacob, later on in his life, there was a point where he said, he said, you know, there's all these things that are against me. My whole life, everything is going against me. Oh no, Jacob, actually they're not. Actually, Jacob, everything is working. Not only for your good, but for the good, the future good of God's people. But Jacob made that statement at a particular time when that's exactly what he thought it was. And again, when you look at the life of Joseph, and again, it, it tells us in Psalm 105, until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Because in Joseph's earlier life, God had indicated to him and shown him of how his brothers, they were all going to, uh, as it were, be under him. And yet he spent years as a prisoner in Egypt, in the dungeons. And it seemed to be all going against Till all of a sudden, it all changed. God's purposes hadn't changed. God's word hadn't changed. But the outworking of it is often difficult for us to understand. Same with David. Same with Israel going through the wilderness to the land of promise. God could have taken them in a very direct route from Egypt to Canaan. But it was a kind of a roundabout way. Why? Because God had to deal with them. God had to break them. And their life was full of trials and difficulties. And you know, we make no bones about it. Trials and difficulties are wearisome. And there have been times you've been weary with your trials. And times I've been weary with my trials. And I sometimes you'll say, oh Lord, this is tough. What's going on here? And we can get quite confused and we can sometimes get quite down. And we say, oh Lord, I, I just feel like something's giving up. That's the way sometimes we are. And when you look at the, the life of Israel going through the, the desert, I remember in my naivety as a very young Christian looking at the life of the, the Israel going through, and I said, what a grumbling, groaning lot these were. I wouldn't have been like that. Oh, yes, I would. I've come to discover I'm exactly the same. When everything's going well, it's fine. But then when you hit the buffers, when you hit the difficulties then that shows what's really there. And 
God allows these things into our life to break us. And we don't like being broken. It hurts. But what's God doing? He's molding us. He's shaping us. It's part of his counsel. Part of his purpose for you. Because he has one great aim for you today as a believer. is to make you more like his son, Jesus. So that you will reflect Jesus in your life. And when you reflect Jesus in your life, it is a powerful witness in this world. You might think you're a hopeless witness. If you're reflecting Jesus, you are a powerful witness, whether you know it or not. And you know often, the more powerful a witness you are, the less you know that. But God will bring his light to shine through you so that it touches people, affects people. And he does that very often through the breaking, through these trials that, that we go through. So there's God, we see here the, the, the counsel of God at work. But again, counsel can speak of, of instruction. And again, that's what we should do. We should listen to hear what God the Lord will speak. And we're told in the word, I hear what God the Lord will speak to his folk. He'll speak peace. And how important it is in a day like this that we, we experience that, that peace. But that's why we must make God's word our daily diet. You know, we use the expression, a word for today. And how true that is. Every day, you make sure that you have God's word in your heart. And I've often said it sometimes, and I know it's great if we can read the Bible through in a year, and there are so many different program Bible uh, Bible reading systems and such like, and they're wonderful, don't get me wrong, I totally uh, believe in these things, and it's important that we do read through God's word. But I think it's more important sometimes that even if we read just a little of God's word and think on it, meditate upon it, reflect on it prayerfully and say, Lord, I want to lay hold on what this is saying. Lord, may this word go down deep into my heart so that I'll understand it, so that it'll affect my life. Help me to live by what your word is saying. Because you see, there's a big difference between knowing or hearing what God's word is saying and doing what God's word says. These are two totally different things. We can hear what God's word is saying very easily, but it's not always so easy to do it. And that's where we need the grace. Because if we know what God's word is saying and don't do it, then that's sin. And that's where the great issue and the problem comes in with the two forces and powers within our life. Because sometimes we know what God's word is saying and we, oh, I don't, don't want that today. That's going to affect my plans. I wish I hadn't read that. That's, that's a real jolt to the way I was planning to live today. And that often happens. And that's why we need grace to say, Lord, it's not my will, but your will. And that's why sometimes it's difficult living as a Christian because we have to face up to these things. So that's why I'm saying it's not just enough to hear what God says and read what God says. We need the grace and we need great grace to do what God says as well. So that's what the psalmist says. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me to glory. Isn't that wonderful? You receive me to glory. That's really what it's all about. 
That's what the whole journey is about. That's what our journey here in this world is about. It's a preparation for the glory. And that word receive uh, that we have here is actually quite, uh, quite interesting. And afterward, you'll receive me to glory. This is the same word that's used for, for Enoch, Enoch's translation to glory. Remember what the man Enoch way before, before the flood. He was a good man. And it tells us that Enoch walked with God. And then it tells us he was not, for God took him. It's amazing. One day there's Enoch, and he's around and about, and he's doing as usual. And all of a sudden, they couldn't find Enoch, because God had taken him. Took him bodily to heaven. So God just, he, it's, it's, he sent for him and received him. He, he, took him to glory. So that's what he does for us afterward. You take me to heaven, just like that. Very interesting, as you it's often reflected on, of how the Lord has taken in the, the three great periods in life. Before the flood, and then there was a period after the flood, uh, right throughout what we would term the, the main Old Testament period of the, the prophets and such like. And then we come to the New Testament time of Christ. And there's someone has come from these three periods bodily into glory. We've got Enoch before the flood. We have Elijah in the period of the prophets. And then, of course, Jesus is taken bodily into glory. And it's there as a great promise being held out. And a great, the great part of the great hope. And we believe that there is still that, uh, not the kind of hope that we use in this world, I hope this will happen. But this set out before all the saints in glory that one day that their bodies will be reunited with their souls. But that's what the Lord does. He, he, he receives us. He takes us uh, to glory. And glory is again, th that glory that we're taken into, it affects every, every aspect of our being. It affects our character. So that in, in glory, all the imperfections are gone. And it's very difficult for us to understand, but there won't be a hint of sin or deceit or twistedness or anger or bitterness or lust or jealousy. Or, it's, and you know, you and I, we, we can't grasp that. But as the psalm says, we will be all glorious within. All glorious, re truly resembling Jesus. The work that has started in this world will be brought into perfection and glory. And the Lord will openly acknowledge and acquit us and he will declare that we belong to him. And there's also the glory of the environment. It's there won't be a cloud on the horizon, nothing to frighten us or to spoil our enjoyment. Again, it's very difficult for us to to, to lay hold upon these things. So the, the psalmist then goes on to say, Whom have I in the heavens high? But, but thee, O Lord, alone, and in the earth whom I desire, besides thee there is none. That's what he says, my, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. How things have changed. Here's this man, who not so long ago was saying, You know, it's a waste of time being a believer. If somebody had come up to Asaph at that moment and says, Asaph, you're a believer. Yeah, 
Is it good being a believer? No. Why? Waste of time. Wouldn't that be awful? I hope Asaph didn't actually say that to anybody, but that's exactly how, that's the frame of mind he was in. But how it's changed, as we said, by coming to God's house, here he is, and he's, he's just full of the Lord. Whom have I in heaven high? Who, whom have I in heaven but you? It's quite amazing how his focus has been, been restored, because he was saying there's, there's nobody else. There's nobody else anywhere that will, will, will touch the like of you. You know that, again, when you, when you see that Spurgeon was saying here, what's happened to this man is very simply this. He has turned away from the glitter that fascinated him for a while to the true gold which was his real treasure. And no health or wealth or possessions or power or influence or prosperity or ownership meant anything to him to having the God of heaven and earth. And you see, he came to understand that things in this world can never ultimately satisfy you. They can satisfy you for a wee while. But there's nothing really for our soul in this world. For what's deep within us. And everybody has a... I think there are various natural cravings that we have. One of the things is we always want to belong. We want to be part of. We want to have a sense of we all want a sense of purpose in this world. Because so many people today are asking, what's it all about? Why am I here? And you know, out with the word of God in a sense, we can't really answer that question. God's word makes it so clear to us. Our chief end is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. And if that is at the heart of our life, then our journey in this world is so different to those who don't know God. Because it gives us this sense of belonging, the sense of knowing why we're here, we know where we're going. And these are vital things. They have a huge bearing upon our day-to-day living, our how we how we feel, how we think, who we are. All these things are so deeply affected by that. You know, when the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's nothing else that he ever desires at all in this world, but it's just putting that the, that the Lord is primarily above and beyond anything else. You know, some people wonder when the Bible does speak to us a lot about heaven and about that we will be going to glory and that we're going to spend forever and ever there. Why doesn't the Bible explain more to us as to what heaven is really like? Well, I think the Bible has given to us as much as we can take on board because it's speaking to us about a a situation and a sphere that it is impossible for us to fully grasp here. When we become Christians, the very first four tastes of heaven, of glory, have begun through grace. Grace is the very beginning of glory. And as we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and even if we're just seeing a very dim vision of Christ, then 
it's still the beginning. We're, we're, we're catching a glimpse of what's, to, what's going to be. We have this little, it's beginning to whet our appetite for it. But because of all the sin that's within us that distorts and mars and hampers who we are and what we are, we can't lay hold upon these things. They're beyond us, physically, mentally, spiritually, even here, beyond us. But we will be suitably prepared for it at death. So it's a journey by faith. We believe. And what we, are, what we read in God's word, we believe it. We believe it with all our heart. That's what faith does. Faith takes those things that you can't really see and brings them down to us to be, re- to be real. So that you're able to say to somebody today, well, you know, to be quite honest, I, I can't fully explain or tell you what, but I believe it as sure as I'm sitting here. I believe it to be true. That's what faith does. It brings these things down to become absolute realities for us. And so heaven is where Christ is, to depart and be with him. That's a big question, and I'll tell you, you will know today really where you are. Do you want to go to heaven to be with Christ? Because if you say to yourself, you know, I, that, it, it, it'll be wonderful to go to depart and to be with Christ. Only a Christian can say that. Because, you see, those today who don't love the Lord, when they think about what, if you think logically of what heaven is, heaven is being in the immediate presence of Christ forever. And if a person says, you know, I don't, I don't want Christ. I don't, I don't, I'm quite happy to hear about him and that, but I don't, I don't want him really to be, I feel he might interfere with my, my life and so on. I want to keep him, as we're saying, that God just in case, keep him at, at a distance. That's not a good sign. How will you handle heaven to be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever? So I think it tells us an awful lot about where we are. You know, like in the, it's a very vivid description in the book of Revelation that tell, tells about at the time when the Lord come, is returning and people will be crying to the rocks and to the hills to cover them, to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And yet the church has got a totally different response It's saying, even so come Lord Jesus. So you have one group of people wanting the rocks and the hills to cover them from Christ. And another group saying, oh, come on, Lord, come. Where are you today? Are you with a crowd that might be saying, Pooh, if Jesus was to come today, I'm not ready for that. I would need something to cover me and to hide me. Or if Jesus is coming today, would you say, oh, great. Come, Lord, make me ready. To, go, to join with you. And just in a word, says in the verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Well, you see, Asaph knew all about the, the flesh. That's what he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. He had, see, when you trust the flesh, when you trust your, just what's within you, if it's spiritually you're looking, it'll, it'll never... It'll never guide you in the right way. The flesh doesn't understand faith. And the more we trust ourselves, the more we're going to get into all kinds of bother. That's what Asaph had been doing, trusting himself. 
It's key, obviously, to trust the Lord. We have to rely on, on his grace. And that's why he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of the rock, literally. The Hebrew for strength is rock, but God is the rock of my heart. You know, the floods may come, but the rock will stand there. The fires may burn, but the rock will stand there. And if Jesus is the rock of your life, come what may, you will stand. That's what the psalmist had come to discover. Have you come to discover that today? Because, you know, we're, we're, we're all heading to a time when we leave this world, whether it's by, through the return of Jesus or whether it is death. And, you know, our friends and our family and everything, the world that we know it's so important to us. But, you know, there's going to come a point where when we go down into death, where it reaches one point where it's only you. But, you know, if you're a believer, it's never just you. It's you and the Lord. Because even into death's dark veil, the shepherd is journeying with you. But if you don't have the shepherd, then it's just you. That's awful. It's an awful thought. And that's why the psalmist says, Lord, we're in this together. And if you're a believer, you can say that, Lord, we're in this together. Are you able to say that today of the Lord? Lord, you and I, we're in this together for life, for death, for eternity? Or are you still just a wee bit outside? Well, if you're still outside, it's time to come in. And Jesus is asking you today, and he says, ask me into your heart, into your life. Let's pray. Lord our God, we pray to bless us. We give thanks for your goodness and mercy. We give thanks, Lord, for the way you teach us. And forgive us when we're slow to learn. But we pray that you'll be gracious to us. Take us all home safely and forgive us our every sin. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Our final singing is from Psalm 16. And sing Psalm, Psalm 16. And sing Psalms. We sing verses 8 to the end. Psalm 16. From Sing Psalms. Before me constantly I set the Lord alone, because he is at my right hand, I'll not be overthrown. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue with joy will sing, my body too will rest secure in hope unwavering. For you will not allow my soul in death to stay, nor will you leave your Holy One to see the tombs decay. You have made known to me the path of life divine. Bliss shall I know at your right hand. Joy from your face will shine. Verses 8 to the end. Psalm 16. Before me constantly. Before me constantly.
of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and abide upon each one of you now and forevermore. Amen.